This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your desktop or mobile device. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Also, help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day by becoming a Trek FM patron through Patreon. Get access to exclusive content and become part of the team. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Trek FM. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. these books i thought i'd take some light reading in case i got bored welcome everyone to literary treks trek fm's dedicated books and comic show i am you know this i'm only one of the hosts here i have amazing gentlemen one on the top of the screen one on the bottom of the screen it doesn't matter which one because they're both winners bruce gibson how's it going man who wait Oh, I'm included in that. Oh, I'm doing great now that you just introduced us that way. That's that's awesome. How are you doing? I'm I'm doing awesome, man. And what's great is that we got Dan Gunther here too. So I mean everybody say hi Dan. Hi Dan. Hi Dan. Oh, sorry. I I was engrossed in Best Defense, the new novel we're talking about this week, because holy crap, it's good. Sorry. Uh hi. Right. Uh podcast. Um words. <laughs> And hey, uh, David Mack's going to be on with us tonight. So, I mean, you better finish that oh, book. Man, it's so good. Uh, this is actually the third time I've read it, so I'm fine. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> wow. High praise. Everybody knows what Dan thinks of the book. Don't give it away all at the beginning. Nobody will keep listening. Luckily, we have some great news to talk about in the sense that we have some some fun things to cover tonight. And guys, it's been a long road getting from there to here with Star Trek ongoing comics, and we finally reached the final issue with issue 60. And I just, I don't even know what to say on how I can praise this and and make it sound right, but I mean, what a perfect way to end the ongoing series. Just phenomenal, especially with this being the 50th anniversary. Yeah, it was you know, there, there's something about this story that just really hits a lot of cool notes, you know. So it's a continuation of the story from issue 59 in which the two crews, the classic TOS crew and the Kelvin timeline crew kind of come together and are going through this kind of cross universe adventure together, figuring things out and getting things a little mixed up along the way. Um, you know, for, for this, as far as the story goes, it's not too complicated. The resolution's pretty, uh, basic, but what we get from it is this really touching, really cool, almost tribute to 50 years of Star Trek in my mind reading this. So, you know, it was something really special that I think I, I'm going to return to and read again in the future because it's a really cool snapshot of a moment in star trek history here that we get it's a great combination of the old and the new 
50 years ago, we had this original series with William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy, so on and so forth. Now we've got this new version of Star Trek on the Kelvin timeline in the theaters with Chris Pine, Zachary Quinto, so on and so forth. And it's great because we can look at the start and we can look at where we are now in Star Trek and take those two casts and put them in one comic. And it honors really the beginning and the, I don't want to say the end, but the 50th mark of the Star Trek franchise. And what a great way to see the two types of interpretations of Kirk and crew being combined into one book and they honor each other. And yeah, it's not a complex story. It's not, it's not something you haven't seen before, but just to see the two together and honored in this way, it's just, it's great. And I agree with you. I'll reread this again. I think what was really nice about it is just the heart that it's done with. Like it didn't matter so much whether the story was revolutionary, but it was a fun Star Trek-y way to bring these two crews together and give them the experience of being in the other timeline. I just, it, I just loved it. You know, it just it was one of those things, as Yoda says. It brings warm feelings to my heart. And and sometimes as a fan, you know, you, you forget the heart of it. And this just brought it home. And so I just hope that uh, the new series that they start doing with um, the Kelvin timeline again picks up some of the same heart and continues with that. I think it will. But um, this was just a great way to to finish that run. And, and it is uneven sometimes as the ongoing series has been. This will always have me looking back on it as, man, that was good stuff, you know, and and that's what you want if if you're going to wrap up a comic. Yeah, it's it's absolutely a fantastic note to end on. I mean, I could I could look at that page where the two Kirks are reading about the history of their counterparts. Uh, You know, I, I would love I would frame that and put that on the wall that's so cool the the look in their eyes as they're learning about their counterparts past and then right after that to get the two crew portraits side by side is just yeah this is classic this is great well and the way that the the two covers merge to create that wonderful picture that needs to be turned into a poster because mm-hmm. that's beautiful art you make that poster I will be putting it on my wall I'm just saying, IDW, find a way to get that done. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I also like the way it ended, uh, as you guys were saying, about the two captains or the two Kirks looking at, at the file of the other Kirk. And it also made me wonder, does the Kelvin timeline Kirk recognize some things after he had had a mind meld with Prime Spock, where there's things that he may recognize from that meld with him. Because I'm sure he, you know, he's had glimpses into that universe before. See, now this is the part where I'm just getting all geeky and, and reading into <laughs> things a little too much. But I just love going there. It's what we do. Gosh, we're on a Star Trek's books and comics podcast. Can you stop being geeky, Bruce? I'm new to all this. I just read my first Star Trek book yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> this is serious stuff this isn't nerdy stuff we're talking about this is serious guys come on this happened <laughs> in some universe uh i am gonna i i created a wallpaper out of that 
the covers, putting them mm. together. So I'm going to put that up on the Babel Conference uh, over there on Facebook, which you can get to by going to Facebook and typing Babel into the search field. Uh, that's our listeners-only discussion group. And I might throw it up on Twitter, at TrekFM. That's where you can find us on Twitter. So uh, check that out. And I was trying... <laughs> Honestly, guys, I was trying to squeeze it into the the frame that they have for the cover photo on our Goodreads group, but it just it didn't mm. work. And I was like, oh, come on, yeah. <laughs> which you can find us over on Goodreads. So look for Literary Treks there as well. It's a, it's a great place to find us. Um, guys, we have uh, uh, one more thing to cover, and this was really interesting. They did a 50th anniversary cover special which is some of the best comic covers over the last 50 years that IDW has been a part of and doing. And, you know, this was really cool to see because there are some really beautiful covers. And if you enjoy cover art, this is one you might want a floppy copy of. Yeah, this was pretty cool. Um, you know, not a lot, obviously, to talk about as far as, as content here, but man, did I ever have a lot of fun flipping through the pages here and seeing some really great highlights of Star Trek comic cover art from over the years. And, uh, you know, some of the comics maybe we liked, some as some we didn't like as much, but, you know, you can't deny that that original cover for the Star Trek Planet of the Apes crossover isn't amazing. Like, there's there's so many really good covers here. And to really be able to sit down and kind of take your time with it and really look at every cover that's in this book is, is it's really cool. It's a really gorgeous little piece that uh, this is another one I'm going to be picking up in the future and taking a flip through every so often. Yep, I agree with you there. You know what, IDW, you're doing things right. This 50th anniversary, you're doing it right. I love how you ended the series. I love this cover book. I mean, it's just all these great covers in here brought back so many memories for me. I don't even remember seeing the Archie thing before, but that was that was new to me too. We see the Archies is in Star Trek land here. But uh and you know, hey, pocketbooks, this is a great idea for you to do covers of some of the pocketbooks covers. I would love to see that too. But uh this is gorgeous. Oh man, I love that idea. Uh of finding a way to do that or you know, even just you know, create some poster yeah. art with this stuff, you know, with, you know, 50 of your best covers on a poster. Same thing for the the, the comic books. I, I think that would be wonderful. Yeah, like uh, going to Shoreleaf, for example, David Mack at his table had this little cardboard standee of uh, an oversized version of the book we're going to be talking about, Best Defense. And all I could think of when I saw that was, I kind of want that on my wall. You know, it's... I'd I'd love Star Trek cover art that big up on a wall. You should have just offered him an exorbitant amount so that you could have it and then, you know, have him sign it. And then it would be one of a kind. Oh, that would have been great. So, guys, <laughs> I have to ask you something. I take my iPhone, and usually when a new Star Trek novel comes out, I take a screenshot of it and make it the wallpaper on my iPhone. Do you guys do that at all? I, I've done that before. Uh, I've also done that with comics as well, you know, that got my Comixology app, and so I'll do that with maybe my iPad or my iPhone. So, yeah, I mean, if the art's good yep. enough, I, I want it somewhere, you know. So, uh, I, I, I mean, I have the Seekers art on my wall uh, that um, they had the promo poster that they were giving away, and 
Dayton uh, was was kind enough to to send me one, and it's beautiful. I mean, just the art is fantastic. So yeah, this this stuff could really you could make some serious bank on this stuff because it's it's nice art. Yeah. It's great art. Yeah, I do the uh, the book cover uh, as the background of my phone as a reminder of the next review I have to write on treklit.com, which is my book review site. But Plug. I'm so far behind on it right now. The background of my phone is elusive salvation. So that makes me very sad, actually. Mm. <laughs> I'll admit Aaron mm. Harvey's artwork is on my phone right now. There's a plug ah. for him. Excellent. Absolutely. There you go. I mean, we're just plugging everyone. Uh, <laughs> so before we just descend into that, I wanted to plug our listeners. And, you know, we're all over the place here on Trek FM. We, uh, like I said, you know, Facebook, Twitter, all that stuff. But the main place you can find us is all the places you get your podcasts, like iTunes or Google Podcasts or, you know, all of these other places. We're just all over the place these days. But uh, I wanted to give a quick shout out to all, a few people who have given us some iTunes reviews recently and just hadn't gotten a chance to say thank you to them. And uh, Sonic JRO5 gave us a five star review, as well as Xpaxed gave us a five star review. They were gushing about the 150th audiobook, which, you know, Tristan, fantastic job. Uh, Guybrush T gave us five stars, as well as Jazz. Four, eight, nine, five stars. And so I just wanted to say thank you to you guys. Uh, because of y'all, you continue to help this podcast get raised in iTunes. Uh, if you look for us numbers-wise, the majority of our listeners are people who listen through some sort of Apple device or through iTunes. And so hit us up. Give us a star rating and review. It really helps the show grow. And especially in the 50th anniversary, it really makes it easier for people to find the show when they are searching through iTunes. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited for that. And guys, I think it's time to just jump into the interview. What do you think? Definitely really excited to talk to David Mack. Do it. Guys, it is just so much fun when we have the authors on the show. And, and what I love is, you know, uh, Greg was so busy with everything he was doing, try to get to shore leave, getting with all the book and everything. He wasn't able to make the show, but uh, I'm I'm real excited. We've got David Mack here to talk about our Star Trek 50th anniversary series that we've got going on, the Legacy series. Best defense author, David Mack. Welcome back to the show, man. Hey, thanks for having me back. It's great to be here. Well, good. Uh, you know, there's, there's so much uh, to get into with this book. Um, first, I just want to ask you, it's been a long time. Since you've written TOS, how does it feel to be back with these characters? Uh, actually, I've only done TOS, uh, I guess you could say tangentially, before. I had the uh, original series crew, as it was configured, circa Where No Man Has Gone Before, or maybe between Where No Man and Corbin Might Maneuver in the first Vanguard book. And then the Enterprise crew... Uh, made another cameo at the end of the Vanguard series in Storming Heaven uh, with a lineup close to what it would have had, say, near late season three. Uh, but I've never actually done a straight original series novel until Best Defense. That's actually the first time I've ever done a straight-up Kirk, Spock, McCoy, five-year mission 
original series novel. So what was it like for you getting the opportunity to have all of these icons at your fingertips? It was fantastic. It was actually something I've wanted to do for a long time. It was, I guess you could say, a gap in my Star Trek resume that I couldn't believe existed, and yet there it was. Partly it was that I had not previously thought up any five-year mission storylines, but it was also partly because Greg Cox has been so dominant as an author <laughs> in that particular niche of Star Trek that it just didn't seem like there was much need for me to start horning in on that. Plus, I had a lot of ongoing storylines in 24th century Star Trek that I wanted to explore. Uh, so the opportunity you know, sort of presented itself when you know, a few years back, looking at the calendar, I realized, huh, 50th anniversary is coming up. And I realized I wasn't the only one thinking that. So I started talking to my fellow authors. And before long, uh, Dayton Ward and I agreed, you know, we said it would be a real shame if, you know, nobody came up with a great idea for a 50th anniversary trilogy. Uh, or if somebody came up with a lame idea when we knew we could have done something great. Why don't we actually be proactive? And instead of waiting for the publisher or the editor to come to us and solicit something for the 50th anniversary, why don't we get off our butts, do some work, do some brainstorming, and actually come up with a 50th anniversary idea and take it to them fully formed for their consideration? And he said, well, that sounds like a great idea, but original series is really, you know, Greg Cox's whole bailiwick. It would not be right for us to even attempt a 50th anniversary project, particularly not a trilogy, without Greg. And I said, well, absolutely. I completely agree with that. So Dayton and I approached Greg at a shore leave convention a couple of years back and pitched him this idea. And that got the three of us talking. All three of us agreed that this was something we absolutely ought to do. So we started throwing ideas around and trying to find a notion that uh, all of us could get excited about. And then we looped Kevin Delmore into the process uh, to start getting his input. And before long, the four of us uh, started zeroing in on, you know, well, what kind of a story do we want to tell? And we said, well, we don't want to try to, you know, repeat what David R. George has already done. Right. We said, yeah. we said you know, this is the 50th anniversary of the original series. If you're going to honor that, the best way to do it is to do a story set in that original series time frame using those characters um, and not venture too far afield from that. So to be able to finally write a whole story from start to finish with classic, you know, William Shatner in my head, Leonard Nimoy, uh, DeForest Kelly, uh, you know, and all the supporting cast to have all of them in there and just tell a classic original series type story, but one that also expands beyond the uh, parameters of what you could have done in a 1960s TV episode, uh, that was just a joy. I mean, to finally be able to do that classic Star Trek adventure uh, was really like revisiting my childhood. And it probably means you had to watch some TOS, you know, just to get in this, the mind frame. So, you know, that's always a shame. Always a shame. Yeah, it was quite a bit, actually. We uh, debated which time period, which season we wanted to set it in. Uh, so we actually looked at a number of episodes, including, of course, Journey to Babel. Uh, and then as I was going through the chronology, I ended up rewatching Obsession and a few others. We had to rewatch Mirror Mirror. Um, so we had to go through all these different uh, episodes to sort of get all the continuity details straight 
But what we were also doing was looking for unexplored dangling plot threads, you know, notions that when you look at it in hindsight, you say, these things have always been there. These are story threads. These are possibilities that have been just waiting for 50 years for somebody to pick them up and stitch them together and, and run with them. And we found them. We actually couldn't believe that, you know, we went through the, uh, you know, the, all the past Star Trek novels ever published. We used the guide to Star Trek literature that was published a few years ago. We used Memory Alpha. We used Memory Beta. Uh, we looked in the encyclopedia. We looked up everything. We said, okay, there's nothing in the canon and nothing in the extended universe that contradicts what we want to do here. We couldn't believe it, but we said, this, we could actually pull this <laughs> off. Let's give it a shot. And we pitched it, and uh, somehow, miraculously, the idea was greenlit. Excellent. Well, if this book is any indication, I mean, your kind of entrance into the TOS world is pretty amazing. Uh, it's There's definitely a lot going on here. And speaking of the kind of plot threads tying this book together... You know, this trilogy is really kind of held together by this idea of the transfer key. It's kind of a very important piece of the trilogy and connecting all three of these books together. And I'm kind of curious, those initial talks with Greg Cox and Dayton Ward, where did that particular idea come from? I couldn't say for certain. Uh, the conversations are now a couple of years old. We've got about three or 400 emails between the four of us that span the development and writing phase. If I had to guess though, I think that the notion of the transfer key of this device being used to bridge alternate universes of a threat from an alternate universe, I think that may have originated with Greg. I think I was the one who suggested tying it to the Tantalus device from the Mirror Mirror episode and right. saying these might actually be one and the same. I said, you know, considering the way we're talking about these things working, uh, and we actually looked at what had been published in the Mirror Universe fiction, and although some of it did not quite line up, I said, well, you know, myriad possible alternate universes. Uh, maybe in the Mirror Universe, its origin is one story, and it got to the Enterprise one way. That doesn't necessarily have to be how it got to the Enterprise in our universe. Um, but I saw the possibility... Uh, of this device having always been there. And I rewatched Mirror Mirror specifically to see whether uh, it was possible to have this device actually have been in Kirk's quarters uh, and whether, you know, it would be, you know, a crime against continuity to have it always have been there. So I watched his reaction when Marlena shows him the device in his quarters in Mirror Mirror. And although there is a, you know, a, a reaction of surprise of, you know, he sort of recoils as she opens it. I thought that could just as easily be Kirk saying, how does she know this is here? Why is she opening this? I thought, what if he has the same device in his quarters, except he knows it's top secret? And that was how I suggested to Greg and uh, Dayton. I said, the transfer key device, you know, maybe the key is just this one removable component that needs a bigger power source in order to do its magic. You know, it can only do stuff at short range. It can wipe people out on the ship with a little more power. It could do a little more. It could be used against a planetary target. I said, but to really sort of, you know, be the thing that rips open a gate between universes, it needs to be hooked into like this big whole facility. And we said, yeah, basically we steal the key out of the big gun 
and it's basically the MacGuffin that we're all fighting over. It's the MacGuffin that activates who's a what's it super Armageddon weapon. I'm like, yes, exactly. So that was how that came about. I think that's one of the things that makes this so fun. And it's almost like it reminded me of, uh, you know, Mission Impossible 3, you know, the rabbit's foot. And mm-hmm. it wasn't so important about what the rabbit's foot did mm-hmm. uh, other than you knew it was bad and it moved all the characters in really interesting directions. And I thought that was uh, the way that it's really, especially in the second book coming off, it's like it it's causing all these chain reactions to which I, I'm finding really fascinating because, I mean, we're getting uh, this, you know, something that I, I don't recall ever seeing anywhere else, but the Organian Peace Treaty talks. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wanted to ask you, when you're putting all this together, how did you add that whole other layer of like bringing in the three main powers plus, you know, the Orions in, in this whole wonderful puzzle piece thing? And it just it, it, all based around, OK, we're going to we're going to actually see something we've just never seen. The Organian Peace Treaty Talks. Partly that was the result of rewatching Journey to Babel. It's established in Journey to Babel that the Orions love to be agents provocateur. They love to, you know, send people in disguise, undercover agents. They disrupt negotiations. They try to foment violence and discord so that they can then swoop in while everybody else is fighting, take economic advantage of a situation and then sell to both sides. That was why the Orions were basically trying to screw up the uh, Babel Conference. It's why they had an agent on Mm, the Enterprise disguised as an Andorian. It's why he murdered the uh, Tellarite ambassador. It's why he attacked Kirk. And the whole thing was they wanted Corridan to remain neutral so that Orion could uh, come in in force Uh, at least the black marketeers, set up illegal mining operations and then sell dilithium to both sides uh, of the conflict uh, to everybody who might possibly get swept into it. So I'm like, okay, so we have precedent for the Orions meddling in and screwing around with sensitive diplomatic negotiations. And the other reason for bringing in the Romulans was that it's always been sort of a three-way principal balance of power in the original series. The Romulans from, you know, season one, uh, Balance of Terror, have always been part of the mix. The Klingons have always been a prominent part of the mix. And the Federation has always seemed to be caught between the two of them. And some of their most dismaying moments seem to be when they discover that Romulan cloaking technology has found its way into the hands of the Klingons in Mm. season three. So, Clearly, there are all sorts of political shenanigans, and that ties in heavily to some of the work we did in the Vanguard books, which played with this sort of tripartite uh, struggle, this trilateral struggle. So we were looking at the potential of the storyline, and one of the things we had touched on in Vanguard was the appearance of the Organians shutting down the imminent conflict between the Federation and the Klingon Empire. But we sort of talked about this, me and Dayton and Kevin and Greg, and we said, well, just because the Organians swoop in and say, you guys play nice with your toys or we're taking them away, that doesn't mean overnight that everything is now hunky-dory. Tensions continued. We saw tensions continue to flare after Errand of Mercy. So we know that that didn't immediately resolve things, that it was an ongoing process, but that the Organians jump-started it. 
uh, but they didn't bring it to a closure. So that meant that there had to be some sort of ongoing effort to continue what they had started. And it occurred to me that when you've got a power like the Organians leveling a threat like they did in Errand of Mercy, where they basically said, we can neutralize your capacity to make war. We can neutralize your entire military apparatus, all your starships, all your weapons here and everywhere across the galaxy. Well, think about what that means really to the Klingon Empire and the Federation. If they both get neutralized because they can't stop slapping each other, that's going to leave <laughs> only one major superpower with working star fleets. And that's going to be the Romulans, which means the Romulans are going to run roughshod over both the Klingons and the Federation. So essentially, the Klingons and the Federation are both looking at an existential threat, except now it's no longer from each other. It's no longer a mutual assured destruction pact like what they've been working with. Now the problem is if we don't get our crap sorted out, a third party is going to take advantage and totally slap the crap out of us. Now the Romulans are trying to force this because the Romulans want this to go down. They want to see their two biggest rivals in local space get hobbled. The Orions want this too, because the Orions know that if you take down the Federation and the Klingons, you have massive opportunities for black marketeering, smuggling, uh, sentient trafficking, and heaven knows yeah. what else. <laughs> I mean, essentially, the former Klingon Empire and the former Federation of Planets turn into crime free-for-all zones where the Orions can make bank for decades before stability is restored. So you've got two outside agitators, each with their own agenda, looking to sink these negotiations. you got two sides. Both know that they need to negotiate a peace, but one side is overly concerned with saving face and the other side is overly concerned with not triggering a conflict. So you basically got a great recipe for diplomatic disaster. And that, that really led me to an interesting thing that in this book you brought in some pretty famous diplomats on each side obviously Sarek is perfect choice you know great to see but then you also brought in Gorkin and, and I wanted to ask how did you come to that decision and make it feel so that it doesn't you know take anything away from what we saw in Star Trek 6 and you know him because it's it's pretty clear Spock has met him before mm -hmm. uh, and has a lot of dealings with him uh, but, uh, you know, obviously it, it does seem like Kirk hasn't really met this guy before. So talk about that decision-making process. Cause I thought it was, it, it was interesting. And then as I was reading the book, it became more and more inspired to have this person kind of be at the forefront of Klingon change so early. Well, we did of course rewatch Star Trek six during the development of the story. And I rewatched very closely the early sequences in the film when, uh, Gorkin comes aboard uh, the Enterprise for the dinner, et cetera, et cetera. It is never explicitly stated by either Gorkin or Kirk or anyone else in the scene that they've never met before. They never say it is a pleasure to meet you, Kirk. Gorkin doesn't say that. The only person who says that to Kirk and makes a point of saying it is General Chang. Chang says, I have so long waited to meet you, Kirk. Only Chang. Why did Gorkin not say that? Why wouldn't you expect some sort of acknowledgement yeah. of a first meeting if it were, in fact, a first meeting? Now, perhaps it was intended in the film to have been a first meeting, but because it's not explicitly stated, I realized it would be possible for Gorkin to have been involved in the diplomatic talks. And 
part of the rationale for that is that Gorkin, as a younger politician, as a counselor rather than a chancellor, was a key supporting character in the Star Trek Vanguard books. And we used him in this political capacity, sort of showing the political machinations within the Klingon Empire uh, and the sort of struggle that ensues between people who are trying to bring about a vision for a different future in the Empire, one that maybe takes them off of this uh, collision course with the uh, Federation. So that was part of what inspired the choice to use Gorkin. Uh, he's one of the most famous, well-known Klingon politicians in the canon, uh, so that weighed heavily in favor of including him. Also, our editors and the publisher uh, really wanted to see a familiar Klingon face somewhere in the story, uh, just to sort of anchor it again in the, the familiar elements of canon, so that was part of the decision. But another fun detail, if you look at book two, really, Gorkin's abduction is what brings the Enterprise to Centaurus. Yeah, Gorkin yeah. and Kirk never actually meet in book two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that they're, was nice. They're never in the same room. They're never on the same planet. They're nowhere near each other. So depending on, uh, of course, I don't want to spoil book three for you, depending on how the story resolves in book three, if, for instance, let's just say Spock is the one who's more instrumental in freeing people from the alternate universe, spoiler alert, uh, and he ends up having an encounter with Gorkin, but Kirk does not have that face-to-face, then this would track perfectly with Star Trek VI. The other thing I really noticed, too, and I thought was kind of a really cool, unintentional tie-in, was in Star Trek VI, Spock says, at the behest of the Vulcan ambassador, I've opened negotiations with Gorkin. And, you know, of course, now in this book, it makes sense that Sarek has had dealings with Gorkin and knows him to be a reasonable person so you know gorkin's the chancellor now awesome open open a dialogue yeah thought that was really cool and using the character as something that shows something that came up a couple times in the novels this idea that our enemy isn't just a you know a one-dimensional enemy but these are people that have desires and multifaceted personalities just like we do kind of through the engineers that work with scotty and stuff i thought that was a really cool character to kind of bring that idea to the forefront. Yeah, I have to say, I really enjoyed writing that moment for Scotty when he encounters Klingon engineers, and he's been so used to dealing with Klingon officer class, Klingon soldiers, Klingon security, and then suddenly, in a situation where he's interacting with other engineers, he finds that science and mathematics are kind of universal languages, and that really, Klingon engineers have very similar mindset to Federation engineers, which is, we would like to fix things. We would like the things we build to work. When we fix them, we would like them to stay fixed. And once they have that meeting of the minds, I just love the little sort of inner monologue from Scotty, which is, you know, maybe if we'd sent engineers to negotiate Mm -hmm. this treaty instead of politicians, we could all be done by now. You know, the the whole conflict would already be over. And he may not be wrong. (laughs) If you just let the scientists and the engineers sort it out, we'd probably be fine. Yeah, I love that line. I thought that was perfect. (laughs) Well, that makes for a really interesting part of the book in the sense that we've got a lot of the the characters that, you know, we when you watch COS, you kind of consider side characters. But Mm -hmm. you found a great way to bring out really interesting aspects of everybody's job on the Enterprise and and I thought almost revolutionary, like the the way that Ohura is just so good 
with communications technology and computer uh, background and all of that kind of stuff. It just makes sense that she'd kind of almost be an expert hacker as well as just communications because she's in computer language all day. Mm-hmm. And I just, I loved how you kind of brought that to the forefront with all of these different characters who, you know, you just great gave great moments to. Uh, and it wasn't like they took limelight away from, you know, the Shatner Nimoy team uh, or anything like that. But it was something that you very seldom saw in the original series, but you always wanted to see it. I, I thought that was really well done. Well, thank you. Um, uh, the, yeah, the inspiration of, for that, of course, was partly the new films where you see a much more active role for Hura as a cryptologist, as, you know, a, uh, an intelligence specialist almost. But yeah, from looking at just the sort of things she was able to do in the original series, even though most of the time she looks like a glorified space secretary, you know, Captain Klingon on line one, uh, she was really supposed to be a communications officer, which meant she was doing things like breaking codes. And you actually see this in a number of episodes. Her job involves monitoring, you know, enemy communications, uh, in, encrypting their own communications. She breaks code. She breaks ciphers. She, uh, you know, does things like internal security. You see this in episodes like uh, Journey to Babel, where she's realizing that the source of signals that are not supposed to be uh, transmitted uh, are coming from within the enterprise. She's triangulating, you know, signal uh, origins and, you know, she's basically part of the ship's internal security apparatus. So that's important. And I said, okay, so she's got a much broader skill set than she often gets credit for. So I, I thought it was interesting you mentioned about the newer movies because that's what I thought when I was reading this book. Each character had something important to do. Something They had equal weight and representation throughout the book. And I thought that's what I was seeing in the, in the more recent movie. So I think it's interesting you mentioned that. But also we got some development on Bones. We got to hear more about his daughter, Joanna, which we haven't heard that much about in other books. And so I'd like to find out more about how you decided to go deep into that relationship and how to portray his relationship with her. Well, first, to speak to your observation about the every character has their role in the story, that was a big part of the inspiration behind the 50th anniversary concept was if you're going to celebrate all of the original series celebrate all of it celebrate all the characters because what made the original series great was when the team when the crew worked together as a team to solve problems when everybody played their role and did their part as for the specific uh, bones story with joanna joanna has appeared in some uh books previously uh most of them back in like the 80s or 90s so she hasn't been seen in a lot of the recent fiction part of the decision to include joanna was driven by the same uh motivation that led us to include sarek which was we wanted to bring in characters who would have a personal connection to our primary cast sarek connected of course to uh spock joanna connected to bones And by bringing in these characters and putting them in situations where they can be placed in jeopardy, we increase the dramatic stakes and we raise the failure cost. And because there's nothing canonically stated about McCoy's daughter past any certain uh, point in TOS, it's entirely viable to put her in danger 
uh, and maybe, you know, not have her make it. So there's a sense on the readers uh, that we are not just playing with funny money here, that there may actually be real consequences. There may be uh, real costs to our main characters if they fail in this mission. So that was part of the rationale for including that. And also just because it was one of those relationships I've wondered about for a long time. You know, how does McCoy deal with this? And I wanted to try and connect it at least tangentially to uh, Kirk being an absentee father from the life of his son, David. But I just wasn't really able to find a way to work that in uh, as prominently as I would have liked. It's funny you mentioned that because you you started talking about the fact of, you know, Kirk and, and David. And I was immediately drawn to, in the book, just the few comments that Bones is able to make to Kirk which I thought were really wonderful of saying, if this was David, what would you be doing? You know, and I think it was interesting to think of these two guys in a way we don't normally think of them, which is that they are dads. But they're both, but they're both dads who've been cut out of their children's lives. Mm -hmm. Exactly, and and like you can understand. I I think this is what I love about that that whole thing, especially exploring this specifically with McCoy you understand where a lot of that anger and grumpiness and resentment comes from because it feels like he didn't want to be that, you know? Um, and then struggling with, you know, a daughter who kind of sees him as just the dad who walked away and all of that. And I just, I really like that. Bones is my favorite character in TOS, so anytime he gets more development like this, I think is fascinating because it adds so much richness to this guy that you know we see on screen for so long and you know he doesn't get as much development as say a spock or kirk but when you dive in like this in a novel it just warms my heart yeah and of course the moment near the end of the book again spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't read it when things go wrong down on the planet uh and bones has his moment where he gets the bad news from kirk at the end of the book that moment was partly inspired by Kirk's own breakdown in Star Trek Three, when he realizes what's happened to David. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I was deliberately looking to both parallel that and set it up almost as a moment of, I guess, almost like foreshadowing, but maybe more homage. Uh, but yeah, there's definitely that, uh, that sense of because it's so personal for Bones in that moment it really strikes to the heart of Kirk because Kirk is all about his friends and something that wounds uh, a dear friend of his that profoundly is going to be something that's going to resonate with him as well. Well, it's kind of interesting to bring up this facet of Kirk's character in particular, because there was something that really jumped out at me towards the end of the book when Kirk is trying to convince the Klingons to stand down and cooperate with them to uh, against the Romulans. He says something like, along the lines of war is obsolete and, uh, you know, we're in danger of, of, of going, becoming obsolete if we continue down this path, which, which really struck me. It was almost, uh, it was really echoed what Azetbur says in Star Trek six to the Klingon generals. Um, and I thought that was a really interesting thing that Kirk at this point is so idealistic and um, you know in the undiscovered country he's he's kind of gone through some stuff you know related to his son David that's made him very jaded and I yeah exactly and it's it's kind of interesting that those roles almost are reversed where it's the the Klingon hierarchy that's 
saying, you know, war is obsolete. We need to find a better way. And Kirk has to kind of come around and, and find that out in Star Trek Six. I thought it was, you know, just a really interesting uh, thing that really jumped out at me there that Kirk was at this stage before all that had happened. And then this stuff with McCoy happens that echoes what leads Kirk down that path. I thought that was really fascinating. If you think about it, in a way, he's planting the seeds of his own redemption, though he doesn't know it. Mm, yeah. Yeah, that's that's fascinating because, you know, a lot of people complained, I think, about Kirk's attitude in the undiscovered country. And, you know, to me... I think that yeah, anyone who's looking at the undiscovered country in isolation and not seeing it in the context of all that has gone before is really doing themselves a disservice. Mm-hmm. It's not yeah. enough to just come to it and say, well, this isn't the Kirk we knew in the original series. It's like, no, this is not the Kirk you knew in the original series. That man was 30 years earlier than that. The man you're seeing in undiscovered country is a man who uh, has had his faith tested and has not had it rewarded. This is a man whose faith has been uh, repaid with villainy, uh, with disappointment, with failure, with loss. He lost his son. He lost his ship. Uh, He nearly lost his career. Uh, he, He lost so much. He's had so much taken from him. And the Klingons repeatedly, through that era, before the Praxis event, before that disaster, uh, have basically done nothing to really win his faith. I mean, you look at how they uh, behaved in Star Trek III. You look at how they behaved in Star Trek V. It was just one mess after another with these guys. And then suddenly he's being told, now they need peace because they're dying. All he has seen from them for 30 years is betrayal and pain and loss. And he's been very personally affected by it in the loss of his son. Uh, in Star Trek Three, so it is entirely plausible to me that this is a man who has lost his youthful idealism, who has lost his faith, and has become jaded and bitter and angry. And that happens to a lot of people as they get older and they suffer uh, life's losses. Uh, it's very easy to look for someone to blame, to find that you have no outlet for the hurt. And then suddenly he's put in a situation where the stakes are so high on his personal transformation that he has to rediscover who he was. And that whole bit with Azifur and what she represents and the fact that she's echoing uh, this sentiment that I've given him, or maybe the fact that I channeled Azifur's lines from Star Trek VI and rechanneled them through Kirk, but you can almost look at it as his life has come full circle. This is the man he was in his youth, in his prime, at his best. And then he fell from this grace, you know, from this sort of prime of his life to where he was near the end of his career in Star Trek VI. And he had to rediscover the best iteration of himself and bring that back in order to finish his life's work. One of the the really interesting things about this story is that kind of... Uh... I don't even know it, which plot it is. We call it, we'll call it the B plot, but in that new dimension that Una finds herself in, that her crew has been locked in for so many years. And I, I just wanted to ask you, what were some of your 
inspirations for creating this strange, matrixy, dream-like place that the Chator are from? Well, you hit on a major one there with the Matrix, of course. But I, uh, another major influence was the Twilight Zone, the, uh, mm. the, the original 60s TV series. Uh, I had mainlined all of it. I rewatched like all 100 some odd episodes uh, a couple years <laughs> back. So I really had this tenor of weirdness. And I was thinking about like some of the weirder dimensions that characters traipse through in that show. But mostly it was about the idea of this uh, creating this universe that has an almost dream state quality to it. Not so much the Matrix virtual reality construct. That was, you know, less of what we were trying to do. We were trying to do something a little bit more like a dreamscape uh, type of a concept. And I think what might be interesting in that respect is if you go in and look at it from that point of view and reread some of the Sarek chapters in book two, you'll see there's one where he talks about the value to Vulcans of lucid dreaming so that they can maintain logical discipline yeah. even within the subconscious realm of dreams so that there is, you know, a, a state of mental continuity even in their dream state so that in their sleep they don't, for instance, screw up their own logical foundation. That may have seemed like a throwaway within the context of the book, but once you realize the nature of the alternate universe it becomes clear that that was actually uh, seated very much on purpose to establish that fact about Sarek. So what were your inspirations on this dimension from where they're from? Where did that come from? Because in some ways it reminded me of what you did in Destiny, too. Well, not really. I mean, it doesn't have much to do with uh, the Destiny paradigm. I mean, a lot of it was thought up by Greg, uh, but me and Greg and, and Dayton and Kevin, we were just throwing ideas around saying, well, what's the alternate dimension like that it sends people to? And we had lots of conversations about that. We, for a long time, could not decide. We said, does it send them just to the mirror universe? Or is it an alternate universe that's like ours with all the same planets, but it isn't populated? And we said, well, how does that work if you move the transfer key and you zap somebody from here now they're on a different planet so that you know how are we supposed to get all these people back and part of the rationale that we eventually settled upon was the notion that it zaps people to this alternate universe which does not map one to one in terms of space time uh with our universe it's not a physical uh analog to our universe and in fact it's uh not a universe that operates by the same sort of physical laws we take for granted. So I guess, uh, like I said, part of the inspiration was the sort of a dreamscape concept, partly the matrix. Some of it comes from twilight zone in terms of the physical characteristics of it with this sort of barren salt flat. Uh, I think I just, I've always loved the look of the salt flats. I think out from like, uh, was it Utah, Nevada, something like that. I've always loved the look of those really kind of wide open, just sun bleached white flat, you know, plain that has the mountains in the distance. And then you got the mountain passes where the survivors are kind of hiding out in their little makeshift camp. And then at the other end of the mountain pass, you've got this edge of this really bizarre, surreal, uh, preternaturally calm sea with these you know, uh, extending sort of bridge roads that come out to get you 
and you walk across them and you you know feel like you know, it's sort of like running in a dream where you're running to stand still and it's only when you stop paying attention that you get where you think you wanted to go and the inspiration for the cities themselves uh in the books the descriptions that we have in the books don't really match the images on the book covers unfortunately they were supposed to be much more like uh, seashells. They were supposed to look a lot more organic, pearlescent, like snail shells or like a uh, like a conch shell with that sort of mm, uh, nice. almost flesh-colored, slightly pink, salmony, very glassy uh, type of uh, texture. Have you ever seen like you know those sort of really beautiful polished seashells that mm, have that yeah. almost pearly quality inside? That was what everything in the Jator cities was supposed to be like. They were supposed to look like not buildings that had been constructed with beams and foundations and concrete and steel, but like something that had been biologically extruded and secreted and accreted over time to build these very unusual, uh, organically shaped, curving, swirling, overlapping, very sort of non-Euclidean, almost a Lovecraftian. I would say there's a Lovecraftian element at work here. The notion of a universe that drives you mad the longer you stay in it. There's definitely Mm. uh, a Lovecraft fiction influence here. Uh, And sort of all those elements played together. So partly it was driven by story mechanics. We wanted to have characters who get zapped by the transfer key always arrive at the same point in this alternate universe, no matter where they got zapped in from. And we did that mostly for the purpose of story logistics. But then we also just wanted to have an environment that would be peculiar, that would be alien, uh, but survivable to our characters, even though it would not seem logical at first that it would be. Uh, But as you get into it in book three, basically a lot of it I'm sure you can probably guess by the time you get to the end of book two what the hell is actually going on. The explanations and confirmations will come in book three, and that's how that's going to play out. It, it's so interesting because as you're talking, I, I'm thinking uh, part of this uh, dimension reminded me of the way that Smallville depicted the Phantom Zone. Mm-hmm. And then you moved into that city area, and it was almost like you stepped into a, a world that looked like the Little Mermaid's castle, but, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> like not in the sea. And right. it's just, I loved the strange uh, combination of all of this stuff because uh, to me it was just like, all right, I love that this is whacked out and nobody knows where they are and it just kind of makes you feel like you're having uh, a hallucination because you did too much LDS. Exactly, <laughs> because part of the question was, what sort of a city would giant hermaphroditic slugs make? You know, that's basically what they are. The Jator are these, you know, either genderless or hermaphroditic. I'm not really sure which at this point. But they're basically slugs, and they don't have feet. They're gastropods. They're gigantic armored gastropods, which is why all their stuff is made with slopes and ramps and curves and, you know, spiraling ramps that go up and down and whatever. It's because you wouldn't build stairs if you were a gastropod. A stair would be a remarkably (laughs) inconvenient thing. So there are no stairs. And, you know, instead of doors that swish apart like we see on the ships, uh, the thing I really wanted to see was uh, these things that are kind of like camera apertures or irises that 
you know, uh, dilate open and then contract closed. Uh, and then we had the things, the moon pools, you know, and uh, Greg really wanted there to be this freaky sort of flying sleds that zip out of the water and fly through the air and do things and then go back under the water so you don't see how they're getting in the city. And I was like, oh, that's really kind of cool and, you know, kind of freaky and gives us something to play with, you know, for an action sequence or two. So it was just the sort of back and forth that led to all these ideas. And uh, it just seemed like there was nothing too weird that any one of us could throw at this thing that did not somehow find a way to work. Uh, and eventually there's also, I think, maybe a little bit of a unwitting nod to Man of Steel in that part of what the Jator Citadel is on Usilda is... Uh, a terraforming engine, except uh, you know, it's what the Jator are using yeah. to transfer to transform this planet into one that suits their ecological needs, and eventually they're going to want to do it to our whole galaxy and then our universe. Anytime anybody wants to connect things to Man of Steel, I am all for that. <laughs> I knew that I was love coming. that movie. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was interesting you use slugs at first when the slug aliens came up. I thought we've never really seen slug like aliens and then you're talking about the environment that they're in so i'm just wondering did the slugs decide the direction that the environment was being created in, or did the environment create the slugs and what order did that come into we uh, settled on slugs first uh that because we decided that a since we didn't have to worry about budgets and special effects and whatever uh that we wanted our aliens to feel really alien and so uh, we eventually settled on this sort of genderless, uh, hermaphroditic, you know, or gastropodic uh, slug type species. And then once we had sort of worked out amongst ourselves the details of their anatomy uh, and their locomotion, et cetera, et cetera, we then said, okay, now, assuming that, you know, you've got, you know, limited uh, facility with uh, four limbs and uh, digits, appendages, whatever, uh, maybe a prehensile tail or tentacle of some sort, they're gastropods. We said, how do they move around? How have they invented technology? What other skills would they need to have in order to build a civilization on the scale that they've built? What sort of universe would they have to come from? So basically, having decided on what we wanted the aliens to be like, that dictated a lot of the subsequent decisions of, you know, how do they build tools? What other abilities do they need to have? What sort of society would they build? What would be their attitudes towards hierarchy, towards government, towards society, uh, toward the individual? Uh, what kind of architecture would they build? What kind of art would they have? And essentially, all of these decisions were dictated in large part by the aliens we chose to create for the story. One of the things that I, I was wondering, because, you know, as we talked about at the top, uh, this is your first time to really get to dive in with the crew of the original Enterprise in this way. Was there any character that you found yourself... Uh, more personally invested in that you you know as you started to kind of dive into their psyche and wh where was the personal connection for you in this book hmm. i mean i like to think that i was able to find a way to relate to and invest in all of the principal characters particularly the big three kirk spock mccoy I had a lot of fun with the uh you know the struggle for power on the romulan ship that was of great interest to me. 
But I think for me, really, uh, the most connection I felt within the story, and you'll appreciate this, was in the McCoy-Joanna story. I felt mm-hmm. like in many ways, the connection that McCoy is trying to rebuild with his daughter and the way that that story plays out over the course of book two and what it's going to mean for him in book three, uh, I really felt like that was probably the most resonant of the subplots and the character arcs within the book. Yeah, I do like that. That's awesome, man. Well, one of the things that we started doing with the authors uh, that they're on, and because it's the 50th anniversary, and so I, I, I wanted to, to ask you, if you come to a fan at any convention or whatever, and there are books that you would recommend that weren't your own, that really inspired you in Star Trek uh, books, what are some that you would recommend? And you can name as many as you like, but or as few, but just what were some that you thought, you know, this really stands out as a Hallmark book and had an impact on me as a reader you're talking about specifically star trek fiction yes sir well i'm sure that this will be echoed by many authors far and wide for me the book that really made an impact was peter david's imzadi before that i hadn't really given much consideration to trying to write star trek novels i had read the james blish adaptations uh and novelizations that were put out during the uh, 70s i believe so i had grown up reading those and I hadn't really read many of the other Trek novels. And then I uh, picked up Imzadi uh, at the recommendation of my friend John Ordover. And I think this was back in the nineties when we were still pitching to the TV series. And I had expressed maybe a passing interest in trying my hand at a Star Trek novel. He said, well, he says, you may have you know looked at some back in the eighties. The books aren't like that anymore. We're, you know, trying to, ramp up the quality and take a more literate approach so he handed me a copy of Inzati and I went into it not knowing what to expect and I was just completely blown away by it I mean the the scope of the story uh the level of emotional impact that it was able to have uh really just caught me by surprise and I said well hell if Star Trek books are capable of being something like this then yes that's definitely something I want to get involved in that's something I want to learn how to do if Star Trek books can be this, then that is something I want to be part of. And I looked at a, a number of others, some of the others I enjoyed around that time. I liked John Bornholtz's Masks. I thought that was really interesting. Uh, Keith DeCandido's uh, Diplomatic Implausibility was a lot of fun. Uh, although I think if I was going to recommend any of Keith's books uh, to, say, the casual reader, I know a lot of people will recommend Articles of the Federation, but I think the really the standout magnum opus in his uh, body of work for Star Trek is The Art of the Impossible, where he takes a single throwaway couple of lines of dialogue from an episode of Deep Space Nine about the Batreka Nebula incident. And it's a funny little exchange between Bashir and Garak in an episode where, you know, somebody, I think Bashir mentions this or whatever, uh, the, you know, the Batreka Nebula incident. And uh, he says, remember what happened at the Batraka Nebula? And Garrick says, it was a minor incident. And Bashir says, minor incident? It lasted 18 years. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, and it's played for laughs, and they never really explain what any of that means or what the details are. It just, it's a throwaway line. He takes these couple of throwaway lines 
and he builds the most complex novel about Klingon Cardassian uh, political relations and military struggles and border skirmishes. And he's not doing it just from the point of view of characters on starships, but he's looking at how it impacts the lives of colonists, of Klingon and Cardassian civilians who are just trying to live their lives and get caught in the crossfire. He's also got it from the point of view of Curzon Dax, who is involved from a negotiation standpoint, trying to uh, you know bring an end to the conflict, which apparently centers over a planet with potentially mystical significance to the Klingons, a crashed uh, starship, military shenanigans, espionage shenanigans. Uh, there's racial tensions and strife, and it's just it's this incredibly complex, beautiful book. And I think really, if uh, I was going to recommend two books out of the mm. entire canon, other than my own, you know, to say you know this is really what you guys have to look at to understand what's going on out there. I would say grab Art of the Impossible by Keith DeCandido, get Imzadi by Peter David, maybe, uh, oh God, what, what's the new one? Uh, I can't remember. It's one of Una McCormack's uh, books, uh, Crimson Shadow. Uh, Crimson Shadow, yeah. Or maybe Brinksmanship, but no, no, Crimson Shadow. A uh, great, beautiful novel about Cardassia. She writes the best Cardassia novel. She just does. Mm, she does. Um, so, you know, that would be a great one to pick up. Uh, I mean, there's been so much terrific stuff published by so many authors over the last 15 years. It's, it's hard to narrow it down to just a few, but those would definitely be uh, right at the top. Definitely, definitely those. Speaking of, of spectacular things by great authors, uh, what's coming next for you, David? Because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I know there's some things in the pipeline. would love to hear what you've got coming up next in Trek and out of Trek. Well, in Trek, uh, my next project coming up, uh, coming down the pike, will be Section 31, Control. That is tentatively scheduled for publication at the end of April 2017. Manuscript is done. It has been approved by the editors. It's awaiting final sign-off of approval by CBS, but we don't anticipate many problems. Um, it's going to editing at the moment. Next thing, we'll be trying to get a cover concept together for that. And that's pretty much going to bring to a close that story arc that I set in motion a very long time ago for Julian Bashir, picking up some of the threads from the earlier Section 31 novels like Abyss uh, and whatnot, and which I continued with Bashir in books like A Ceremony of Losses, Zero Sum Game, Disavowed, and all of those. So this book is a, a direct sequel to Section 31, Disavowed, and it picks up a lot of those storylines that have been long simmering and long running for Bashir and his uh, lady love, Serena Douglas. And it's going to sort of bring it all to a head as they kind of uh, risk everything uh, on a gamble to finally expose Section 31 and drag them into the light. So it's essentially going to be one of those books where you may say, well, I know the hero is going to succeed. And the question is, not will he succeed? It's how much is he going to lose to get there? What's it going to mm. cost him? Bum, bum, bum. Excellent. Really excited about that one. <laughs> after that, uh, the next Trek book I have uh, in the pipeline to write after that, uh, I'll probably be writing it in January, maybe sometime after the holidays. That's going to be a Star Trek Titan novel, and that's called Fortune of War. And I don't want to say too much about that, uh, just that it 
takes a, a dangling plot thread, because I love to find those, from, a, from an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. Uh, I'll even give you another clue. A third season episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. Ooh. I found one that had a beautiful, lingering plot thread. And I looked at it and I said, what happens if you pull on this thread? It's like, yeah, you said that happened and that happened and that happened. Well, what about this? And doesn't that mean that? And I just started pulling all these threads. And then I was like, yeah, that could be one of those things that when it unravels uh, leads to interstellar war and millions of casualties. And so the Titan and its uh, <laughs> explorer group get sent out to put a lid on a potential nightmare of a disaster. And it's going to be, you know, classic David Mack uh, action romp where you've got multiple factions coming at the problem from multiple directions and everybody's fighting everybody and everybody's trying to screw everybody else and uh you know chaos ensues and hijinks and laughs and a good time is had by all well we're going to be spending a lot of time speculating about what that one's about uh my money's on the shellyac i want to see them <laughs> All right. So beyond that, what I'm currently doing uh, for the month of August is I'm revising a uh, manuscript for the first novel of a new series I'm doing for tour. The novel is called The Midnight Front, and it is part of what I hope will be a series called Dark Arts. And The Midnight Front is a World War II epic with sorcery. And uh, I've, my editor has charitably described it as uh, Captain America meets Hellboy. Awesome. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I'm not sure that's entirely the most accurate description, but uh, he says everybody in the sales force loves it. So that's how they're going to try and market it and sell it. And I'm like, all right. Uh, again, I don't think that's accurate. It's more like Harry Potter goes to war, but, you know, fine. <laughs> in any event, I'm basically deep into rewrites and revisions. Uh, I finished the first draft of the manuscript uh, about this time last year. And uh, it took a long time for it to work its way through the process uh, and to get the notes back. And then I had other projects, like I had to finish the manuscript for control. So I wasn't really able to get started on the revision process for this book until uh, late in July. But I'm going to be working on revisions on this through uh, Labor Day. And then I have some other pet projects that are simmering that are not yet uh, at a stage where they can be announced partly because they don't have contracts and partly because of NDAs and other happy business. Uh, but there will be news hopefully coming very soon. Well, David, I, I, I'm real excited about it. I mean, we've been with you for so long and you've been with the show for so long now that, you know, you've got uh, this storyline that you've been working on for so long and we've been hearing about, and I, I'm really excited to read it. Like, uh, As I, am I. Uh, yeah. <laughs> boy, well, I'm, so I, I'm done writing it. Let me tell you. Oh man, I bet. First of all, I've had to gut so much of it. Like I was throwing out large sections as part of the rewrite. The the first draft manuscript came in at about two hundred thousand words. Uh, I've managed to cut it down so far to one hundred and seventy-two. My editor will be ecstatic if I can get it to anywhere below one sixty. So I'm I'm ruthlessly cutting and cutting and cutting as I go through the book trying to get it down to fighting weight. Oh, that's tough. <laughs> oh, it's awful. It's it's the most miserable experience, cutting one thing after another. But I'm hoping that it will make for a leaner, faster book, uh, one that will read more cleanly. And I'm hoping that uh, when I'm done, I will have addressed all of the beta reader notes, all of the editorial notes, all of the notes from my agent. And uh, the net result will be a book that... Uh, 
Well, I'm sure we'll uh, be flagged for all sorts of other reasons, but at least it won't be for the obvious reasons. People will have to find all new things to hate about it after I'm done with the rewrite. So there we go. Man, will you, I'm, I'm, I'm really excited. I mean, that, the fact that you've got Control coming out and then the Titan novel and your own work, uh, so much there. So uh, I hope everybody will check those out and, of course, check everything else out that you've done before, especially with uh, Best Defense out right now. Um, before we let you go, just let everybody know where they can follow you so they know when all of this stuff is coming out and uh, make sure that uh, they know the best ways to pick up your works. Best place to keep track of what work I have coming down the pipeline is my website, davidmack.pro. David Mack, M-A-C-K dot P-R-O. If you want to find me on social media, I'm on Twitter at David Allen Mack. That's David Allen, A-L-A-N-M-A-C-K. And on Facebook, I am facebook.com slash the David Mack. Well, David, thank you so much for coming back to the show. Love having you here and can't wait to have you back next year to talk about control. I look forward to that as well. Excellent. Thanks for being on. Yeah, thanks, David. Okay, guys, that was great because that's the first time I've ever sat in on an interview with a Star Trek author, and I'm just beside myself right now. <laughs> it's it's always so much fun, and honestly, I'm I'm really glad you could be here for that and enjoy talking to these authors like we get to on a regular basis because it really is something special that uh, we're able to bring the listeners on this podcast that you know you don't get a lot of sometimes so it, it's really definitely an event when we're able to do this well and, and the talent of these guys i mean you know as as david was trying to figure out oh, okay which author do i recommend you know like when you start running through the talent here it's just ridiculous um these these people are amazing so and the fact that they give us their time is something I never take for granted, uh, you know, and I want them, you know, any of the authors listening, uh, thank you so much. You know, the fact that you give us an hour of your time to pick your brain about these books is is just phenomenal. Uh, and I love your passion. Uh, so thank you for just sharing that with us because, you know, I, I know it means the world to the listeners. And I, I, I what I really makes me excited is the fact that we have people who believe in our mission here at Trek FM and on Literary Treks. And we have an amazing group of associate producers through Patreon who make sure that this show and the entire network keeps coming to you each and every week. Ken Tripp, Brandon Shamatola, and Bruce Gibson, these guys through Patreon have have flagged Literary Tracks is the show that they want to make sure that they have their name attached to, which to me has meant the world. Uh, and it makes sense for Bruce, you know. Uh, but uh, Patreon is a way for you to make sure that all the content through Trek FM keeps coming to you each and every week. Because there's just no way that we behind the network can make sure that we don't have the funds. It's just too big. So go to patreon.com slash trekfm, see how you can be part of the team. We have some amazing perks that come along with different levels of contribution, and you can find all of that at patreon.com slash trekfm. And again, to all of our patrons, thank you so much. And to all of you who are thinking about being patrons, just do it. 
as Nike would say. (laughs) (laughs) Well, guys, uh, let's see. Now, Dan, when you're not getting lost in an alternate dimension where you can't tell if it's a dream or reality or who that girl in the red dress is, where can we find you? You know, I was wandering across this Lovecraftian hellscape, and I swear I was in the mountains, and and now I'm just... I I really don't know what's going on here. Uh, You know, maybe tweet to me some directions. You can find me at Kurtrats, that's K-E-R-T... R-A-T-S. You can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash Productions and on YouTube at youtube.com slash Productions. And of course, you can also find me on the Babel Conference. Uh, that's Trek FM's listeners-only group, as you know. Bruce, when you're not dangling upside down off a catwalk trying to keep the Enterprise from, from blowing up, where can we find you? There's too much blood rushing to my head. I have to go straight back up. So I'm on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex, and I'll be talking Star Wars on the Star Wars Report. And of course, I'm always in the Babel Conference ready to talk about Star Trek. And so, Matt, when you're not mopping the floors of slug slime, where can we find you? Well, you know, somebody's got to do it. So, I mean, I I don't know if you've ever slipped on slug slime, but uh, not only is it not fun, but it's not fun to say. So you can find me on Twitter at MattRushing02. You can also find me doing The Orb here in the network with Chris Jones where we talk about Deep Space Nine. Such a fun show. If you love Deep Space Nine or you just need to be talked into loving Deep Space Nine, you need to check out The Orb. I do The 602 Club, uh, which is our general geek show here in the network. Uh, it's it's just so much fun. Uh, in fact, I mean, this last week I had uh, Bruce Gibson on along with John Mills. We talked about the new Star Wars book, Aftermath. That's the kind of thing we do. We talk about everything that we can under the sun or that we have time to get in to watch. So check out the 602 Club. You're going to love it. And I'm also on aggressive negotiations with John Mills where we talk about Star Wars. Uh, it's over on the Nerd Party, which is thenerdparty.com, or you can find us on iTunes. Thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.